I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Thank you all so much for coming out. I'm not surprised you're all here because it's the hot ticket, honestly. Um, and well done for getting tickets. Um, we are honestly really excited to have you all here to help us celebrate Amy Key's arrangements in blue. Um, I, I, tr I tried to plan things as far ahead as possible, but I think almost as soon as I heard that this was coming out, I wrote to Mayor and was like, can we have, can we have to do an event? <laughs> please um, and, and, and we've managed to do it thank you so much thank you also to Megan Nolan for being here who's going to be in conversation with Amy um, yeah thr absolutely thrilled and can't wait to hear what you've got to say um, our guests are going to talk for about 45 minutes as usual there'll be time for questions afterwards that's it from me please just help me welcome our guests thank you both so much for being here cheers Thanks everyone for being here. Um, I'm really happy and honored to help Amy celebrate her amazing book, uh, which I think everyone knew would be amazing, but ex exceeded all my expectations anyway. And it's very beautiful and, and I loved it very much. Um, so I'm really happy to be here with you all to celebrate it and with Amy. Um, so I think we will kick off with a short reading from the book. And then, uh, yeah, if, if you could give me a shout when it's near 45 minutes, so I know when to wrap up. But, um, yeah, so we'll hear from Amy first, and then I'll ask some very difficult questions. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, Megan. Um, yeah, and thank you um, so much for coming to my, my first Arrangements in Blue event. Um, I'm just going to read from the introduction, so I'm <clears throat> going to start at the beginning. It, may, it makes sense, um, and then hopefully <clears throat> that can set up the conversation that Megan and I will have. Love, looking for something, what can it be? When I traveled alone to Los Angeles in early 2020, a taxi driver asked me why I'd come. I told him I was there to write about the singer-songwriter Joni Mitchell. It felt good to have a story. Joni Mitchell, Joni Mitchell, he said. I'm just thinking if I know someone who knows Joni. I didn't say anything. Wait, I think I do. I've known the musician Gillian Welsh for like 20 years, he said. I'll give her a call. Maybe Gillian can hook you up, get you five minutes on the phone with her or something. Here, 
take my number. I took his number even though I knew I would not call him. I was attracted to the idea of being someone who would call him. And while I did, <clears throat> and while I did hope to write about Joni, she wasn't why I was there. I'd had the trip planned long before that idea came along. I was there to write and think, but I didn't expect much of myself. My friend and poetry mentor, Roddy, <clears throat> had died the month before. I arrived with a grief that I hoped might melt into California's huge horizons. I hoped newness might knock grief clean out of me. Joni Mitchell's album Blue has been part of my interior world for 30 years. My copy of it on vinyl has grown warped from being kept in direct sunlight, scratched from my careless ways with record sleeves and liners. When I play the record, it sounds as though it's being received from space, the music delivered through a fuzzy channel of feedback. It's been so well used as to take on the quality of being commonplace, where dings and scratches and fading are accepted because of its sense of belonging to me. But I don't need to play the album to listen to it. I can sing it from start to finish with all the emotional and tonal shifts and often do. I can summon every element of the music in my head. My paternal grandma, Eva, used to say to me, Amy, I hear music. I loved this mysterious declaration. I now know what she meant. Using thought as my instrument, I regularly play blue from start to finish without a pause. <clears throat> I think back to 1992, the first time I heard blue. My best friend had recently begun to have periods and one had just started. She was sleeping over on the pull-out bed that lived under my own. We called it the surfboard. My red and purple lava lamp was on. The rest of the lights were off. We listened to the album on cassette, borrowed from my older sister, Rebecca, an emotional inheritance. Hi, Rebecca. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> the first song is all I want. Into the dark cocoon of our sleepover, Joni sang. I am on a lonely road and I am traveling, 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 looking for something, what can it be? I remember having a strange feeling, an anxiety adjacent excitement, a bodily sense that I too would experience something transformative and soon. I joined Joni on the road she was traveling. I knew I would not sleep until the cassette had clicked onto the B-side and I heard the last note of the last song. In my memory of that night, the lava lamp was like the pain my friend was experiencing, the hot red pulse of it, pain as an, a red energy, as hypnotic, pain that moves as an octopus might in the deep seas of womanhood and romantic grief, thresholds I had yet to cross. I was 14 and yearning to swim in both. That night, Blue ignited my desire and ambition for romantic love, my idea of how I would press my heart against the world. What appealed, I think, was the way it described the world. Oh, the way it described the complexities of love. It was the first representation of love that seemed truthful. Love is best and worst joy and sorrow, 
I'd hurt someone, they'd hurt me. Love meant staying and going, the bothness of it suddenly clear. And love did not mean convention, perhaps not marriage, perhaps not children. The music's harmonic cascades in all their sprawling highs and lows mapped the course I and romantic love would take. Blue seemed to give me a complete palette to paint myself into all life's possibilities. I took in the album's emotional range and it became innate. I accepted blue as part of the language I had to express myself. In early crushes and relationships, I test my feelings against blue sentiments, as though the album provided an ultimate scale of intensity that would reveal whether the love had substance. Was this a love so strong I couldn't numb it out of myself with wine? Did it have the endurance of the Northern Star? Could it keep away my blues? Would it anchor me where I stood or let me sail away? Looking back now, I think I tricked myself into believing almost all my romantic attachments measured up against blue scale. I accepted love would bring me pain, so much so that joyful love became not an expectation, but an occasional gift. Love meant being prepared to bleed. I was ready to commit to it. But while I have certainly bled for romantic love, I've largely found myself living without it. The last time I had a boyfriend, I was 22. I'm about to turn 44. In my early years of knowing Blue, I thought I was at the beginning of romantic love's presence in my life. All beginnings incorporate the potential for an end. I just had no idea how rapidly I'd get there. <clears throat> Thank you so much. Um, so I wanted to ask first about. I'm gonna. But yeah, we're very, very into <laughs> yeah. it right now. <laughs> um, wanted to ask about the journey from the Granta essay to the book. Mm. So, um, so I'm sure most people here know that the the book began as a as a Granta essay that that was, you know, incredibly warmly received and people really meant a lot to so many people. Mm. And I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about the journey and also whether when you were writing the essay, if it already felt like it needed more space or whether the reception to it led to the feeling that you should expand. Mm. Um, so the Granta essay was a really interesting experience for me because I had initially set out to write about Joni Mitchell's relationship to some contemporary poets. Um, and that's what I pitched um, to, to Granta. And it was only when I started writing that I sort of found my way into this, you know, like a little fissure that I was needing to, to crack open. And it was through working with Eleanor Chandler, the editor at Granta, that I think we realized the, oh, this sounds very cheesy, but like the soul of the essay was in, like the, the thing that anchored the essay was this idea of, um, romantic love and the way the way I was had been listening to Blue for so long had um, I don't know how, how kind of my expectations of love had, had been upended um, and as as I was writing that essay I did get a feeling like I could probably keep going for, for a long time but like we had to stop and you know the essay was only supposed to be a certain number of words um, and it needed to be published um, but I probably wouldn't have 
revisited it, at least not necessarily in prose. I might have revisited it in poetry had it, it not reached um, such a wide readership. And then people began to ask me, have you thought of extending this into a book? Um, and the answer to that was was no, but now I am, yeah. <laughs> um, and I say that with some trepidation because obviously like the worst thing, you know, the fear that keeps me awake at night is like someone going, oh, it should have just stayed an essay. You didn't need a whole book for this. Um, but I, 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 I feel like there was definitely more to explore and, and actually um, I feel like people living single lives or like experiencing the absence of romantic love has become more of a talking point more recently and that tells me you know there's a real appetite for for exploring this more mm -hmm. and as a quick aside how, how did the reception to the essay feel at the time um how did it feel i mean it felt pretty like it was a mixture of exhilarating and really gratifying because um I was writing about something that caused me real pain and um, to feel like, you know, the majority of the responses I got made me feel like I was understood and I was, I was legitimate in feeling the pain that I felt um, and allowing for that space of kind of ambivalent, you know, complex feelings about romantic love, it not being, not needing to, kind of eschew it all together or like wholly embrace it and be in this sort of middle territory where actually it would be really, I would really, I desire it, um, but I also need to feel intact and have integrity as a person mm -hmm. with if it, if it doesn't end up being part of my life in the way it is for other people. Mm -hmm. um, but it was also like, it was quite, it was quite tiring somehow because when people are responding to stuff and they're sharing their responses with you, it's it's quite emotionally, um, what's the word? I don't know. Draining. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like maybe not, because like draining feels like a little bit. Too negative. Or... Yeah, yeah, but like it's almost, it's almost like you can withstand it for some amount uh -huh. of time and then have to retreat, I think. Yeah. yeah. Um... And yeah, that kind of leads a little bit into what I wanted to talk about in terms of the word bravery. Mm. So I've noticed that Amy's book has been described as brave quite a lot in the reviews and uh, the way people speak about it. It's also a word that people applied to my book when I published it and it was a kind of a complex word for me and brought up a lot of emotions. And I was wondering, how do you feel about that word? Is it validating or patronizing mm. or both? Do you feel you've done something brave? What's your relationship to this word in, in terms of the book? Yeah, it's such a, I think it's a really good question. Um, I, I, um, when people tell you you've done something brave or they think you're brave, like there is a part of me that thinks, ah, do you think I've done something foolish? Mm -hmm. What are you, is what you're saying to me, I wouldn't reveal yeah. that much of myself. I think you've been a bit careless or you're being dangerous and I wouldn't advocate for that, but like, Good for you. Yeah. Good for you yeah. <laughs> with your like bravery and yeah. um, so I, I do have a um, a kind of a strange relationship with the word. I, I think when people apply it to the book, like I just want to, I guess I want to read it in good faith that um, maybe they're recognizing that it can take courage to talk about things that are uncomfortable or that 
causes shame mm -hmm. and there were parts there were definitely moments when I was writing where I felt like I'm having to be really brave mm. and actually in a way that was the only thing that mattered if it was like overcoming my reluctance to speak truly about an issue and not try and um flatten it by like making it a generalization and to talk specifically to my relationship with different things yeah so that felt like the right thing to do and it took it definitely took courage but I wouldn't necessarily get more from someone telling me it was brave than I got from myself yeah. if that makes sense yeah yeah I, I, <laughs> while you're speaking there I just thought of this uh tweet that I saw yesterday that was like me putting up the most flattering picture of myself that ever existed to everyone being like you're so brave for varying beauty standards <laughs> which is sort of how I felt when anyone was like you're so brave I was like oh really I'm just doing my own thing like I'm just trying to portray myself so if that's brave then yeah, it's it, kind of <laughs> it can make you feel really ashamed if people are like yeah. oh that's you know like um you're wearing this you're wearing an outfit and they're like oh a very uh you know brave choice you're like you're really insulting me yeah. <laughs> yeah. um and yeah i wanted to ask also about the, the there's a part where you, you say something about asking whether there's something wrong with you mm. as regularly as as you you know consider very daily mundane issues and this is like a, a constant in, in, in your mind's yeah. repetition or whatever. Um, do you do you feel like that constant questioning, is there something wrong with me, is to do with singleness? Or is it is is there a particular variant of that question that everyone experiences but but is particular to singleness for you? Yeah, I, I think it's probably the latter because um I feel like everyone who who like wants something and can't get it or is denied it like it might be I don't know you've you've your card's been declined or you you don't get a job you want or um you can't have children or you know what whatever it is you can end up interpreting that as a personal failure like there is something wrong with me and if I could just fix that thing it would come to me. I don't understand, you know, like mm -hmm. I don't, I can't comprehend why um, this isn't happening. But I feel like for when you're when you're single and you're asking yourself what is wrong with me, it's very very hard to like rationalise out of it when it continues for a very very long time. Mm -hmm. um, because people's like platitudes don't change. You know, people will still say to you like one day yeah. you'll meet your person or like um, it, they might be just around the corner or if you stop looking um, and um, so you're, you're held in this space of like eternal failure until that thing happens. No one will like let you just be mm. and then be like, oh, great bonus that, you know, they, they, they've got a romantic relationship, but it was all, it was all great beforehand. Mm. Um, and I think there's a particular shame perhaps for single women um or like femme femme pre presenting people because um all of our all of the way we've been socialized is to value be valued for our sexual romantic desirability and and if you don't feel like you're attaining those standards or you're not being chosen then you've somehow fundamentally got got it all wrong mm -hmm. um yeah, so I don't think it is specific to singleness, but I think there's probably just like a particular category yeah. of it that that manifests in a slightly more pernicious way, mm -hmm. perhaps.
and then relationally you write you write about like other sorts of women as 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 i also have done in 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 my work quite often and as in uh okay so you say of a man who reveals that he has a girlfriend after you sleep together uh i was hotly desired but not for long elsewhere a more refined less eager woman waited yeah and i was wondering when you think of these other sorts of women mm. is the crucial difference one of appetite which you kind of come back to there where 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 it's about eagerness or like a, yeah. a restraint do you, do you feel when you like in a very general sense perceive this other category of women is the difference to do with appetite or is there like are, are there lots of different things at play i think i think there are lots appetite is definitely one of them and and i guess also because i've got a fat body there's all of this shame connected to that which um makes me feel like not like the the archetypal desirable human mm -hmm. um so that's definitely connected um but i do wonder whether there's the <laughs> my my bewilderment at not finding romantic love or you know like not locating good romantic relationships has had something to do with um that like that my confusion being like literally worn on my face when it's not happening and and um that i, I guess i've told myself that that must be very very off-putting for people um because i don't know how to for example play it cool mm. <laughs> like what is this playing mm. it cool like what is this restraint you know i've you know i'm just quite a giddy person and when i like <laughs> when i like people you know i just tend to sort of really like yeah like yeah bound bound out with that like i don't think people are ever confused about whether i mm. like their company or not mm -hmm. um yeah, yeah i'm not sure if that's a short question no no no, no, no. no it's, it's i was just <laughs> reading I was reading a couple of days ago one of these many uh, Ozempic articles, but not not to do with the weight loss stuff. But I was interested to see that apparently it also affects your like impulse control in general. Oh God! And I did think, God, that would be nice if, if I didn't, you know, if I, <laughs> if, if you know, because it, it apparently affects like online shopping impulses and yeah, I mean, all sorts sounds, of things. Yeah. And I, I was wondering, like, I, imagine I, if you could just take that and then you had no just, impulsivity. Just turn off those Im yeah. impulses. Not that I would, like, I, you know, I think I valued that stuff about myself, like the what you're talking about, basically, like the lack of boundaries and. Uh, <laughs> You know, like the inability to pretend that you're cool, I think is, is I, I like in people personally. But yeah, it's an it's an interesting one when you when you see someone without that that, and you're like, oh, but they are so valued in the world because they're yeah. able to restrain themselves. Yeah, and, and restraint is like it just feels like such a, a like a moral quality. Like I almost I'm almost like obstinately rejecting it because I kind of feel like there's this puritan you know, puritanism, you know, attached to it that I. I just want to disregard mm. um yeah which possibly makes me sound more rebellious than I actually am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um and we were talking a little bit ago about uh there's a quote by this comedian called Margaret Cho where she did this interview to Guardian where she was talking about her life after divorce and after being seriously ill and a, and su a suicide attempt and she was talking about her life now and trying to live alone and happily living alone and she says uh you know, as a woman, we're told, oh, you're going to die alone. Like, that's the biggest fear. But I'm actually really hopeful that I die alone. And, you know, <laughs> talks about talks about that being a positive thing for her in her life and came up in, in my life not long ago after a separation with somebody. I was discussing it with a friend and uh, I said, 
almost as a reflex, like a post-breakup reflex. Uh, I don't want to die alone. And he responded, from what you're telling me about your behavior, it sounds like you sort of do want to die alone. <laughs> and I thought, well, may maybe, yeah. Like, I, you know, I don't think or feel that. But in my actions, it does seem to, to, to be the case that that's not a bad outcome for me. Like, I, I don't yeah. find that to be the most alienating outcome I can imagine, certainly. Um, and, and then I, I was thinking about how extremely focused the whole conversation on singleness is about dying alone <laughs> like that's it's always coming back to dying alone rather than having a life alone and i wondered why do you think everyone is so focused on this dying alone idea instead of like all of the other things there are to talk about do you have any thoughts about this as a focus i think we're just i mean i am very frightened of dying yeah um I don't know if I'm frightened of dying alone, though. Um, I, I'm I'm more frightened of like the practicalities of dying without people who consider it their responsibility to look mm -hmm. after me. Like, like I really, I'm like, oh, so every yeah. now and then, I'm like, oh, if I just save us some money, I can get 24-hour carers, <laughs> and I will like convert my house, and it's all gonna be cool, and I can just <laughs> hang out with my friends. Um, but like, you know, oh, oh, care in older age can be really, really brutal, and. Um, very, very stressful for family members. So, you know, on some level, I'm like, that would just be the ideal situation. I just get looked after, I maintain my dignity and independence, and then I get to be around people I love. But I think the thing um, I was mentioning to Megan, I was at a funeral the other day of someone who died very young. They died when they were 57, which to me, you know, I'm in my 40s, so like that's the next mm. decade. Um, and we sat in this funeral service and it was kind of beautiful and moving and upsetting in the way that funeral services are. And my colleague turned to me and said, um, that's what you'd want, wouldn't you, for you? And I was thinking, mm. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, because it was, you know, the, uh, it, you know, there was all this talk about like, he's died young, but um, it was a, it was a, like a, a life well lived because he had a wife and two children and he had made a, an intact life that um is you know that is what's considered a life well lived and he he did have he was a beautiful man who mm. i loved um and his life was great um but I know that if I'd said, well, if I die alone, everyone would be like, oh, well, that's really, really tragic. And and I was thinking about the epigraph from Megan's novel, um, the Raymond Carver poem, Late Fragment, which is like, you know, what what do you want most? And it's like to, to find myself beloved on earth, or I can't remember mm -hmm. the, the exact line, I butchered Raymond Carver, I'm sorry. <laughs> but um, there is there is this kind of fairy tale that you're told that, if you just find that one true love, life will have meaning and you can just pop your clogs without a regret <laughs> in the world because you'll have done everything right. Um, and I, I don't think, yeah, I hope I'm not on my deathbed going, oh, I wish I'd had a few more romantic relationships. And. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, Sorry, this is a you know a difficult thing to talk about, but some of the more uh, devastating parts of the book are about uh, your friend and mentor Roddy mm. Lumsden, who's you know your relationship with him and and his death and what happens after his death. And he was single, but you're actually describing quite a lot of detail, which I found really fascinating and moving. Mm. The support network which surrounded him when he was dying. Yeah. 
And I was wondering if that experience or your relationship to that death had had moved anything for you in that way, or if it or if it impacted your thoughts about singleness or aloneness and and that sort of thing in that way. Yeah, that's. Um, I have to think about what I what I think about that. I think the thing with with Roddy is he it, he was acutely unwell for several years, and I think what we saw was like this. Um, like curve of engagement with, with with him and his illness so there was a point at which he was absolutely embraced by a community of people and then towards the very end of his life and I talk about how I kind of you know abandoned him I didn't see him for several months before he died because I got to a point where I was like I, I can't confront it um he didn't have that at the very end I mean, everybody was there at his funeral mm -hmm. and was sad. I'm, I'm like, I don't crit criticize anyone. I'm, I've, I've criticized myself, but for different reasons. Um, and I think what I saw was you, you almost have to have like this relay, like this relay of squads who can support someone through a community rather because everyone, what, what happened was there'd be people who could offer a lot and then something would happen in their life and mm. the priority would shift and they would have to withdraw. Um, and then he would have like quite inconsistent kind of caregiving and, and like the community would, wouldn't would like be around him in the same kind of way. And I think that's probably because we are kind of conditioned to prioritize like the family, the mm. biological family unit. So like their first order and then friends come in this second category of people um and i i i guess i would i hope that we i don't know we we just maybe might look at that a little bit um mm -hmm. You know, I don't know what I'm saying, you know, for because I'm not sure what I'm going to follow it up with. But, <laughs> um, but he, he had family members who could care for him, but it, like each brother couldn't do it alone. Yeah. There needed to be other people. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we, I, I don't know, we expect families to do the heavy lifting of a lot of tra traumatic stuff. And, yeah. You know, it's not always going to be possible for them. Or maybe it's better if it's not them. I don't know. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, I'm going uh, so, sort of thinking about it at, at the moment a lot because of a lot of uh, I don't know friends are you know marrying off and moving and mm. all those sorts of things at the moment in my life and uh, and mm. yeah those, those sorts of fractured social groups that you are part of that are very core and you know important to you in every way but you can't maybe count on them once they start families seems yeah. like a very Difficult to like, negotiate right now. Yeah, yeah. I went through a real like I got relegated yeah. in order of priority for like in a whole friendship group because all my peers got married and had children. Yeah, I was the only single person, and if I hadn't have encountered a lovely group of friends who were all younger than me, I, I don't. Yeah, I'm not sure what my life would would be. Yeah. Um, yeah, I feel the same. I'm just gonna yeah. keep cruising, yeah. cruising, just reading keep for 25 year olds yeah. until I'm dead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah. Also. Okay. Hands up. No. Basically, nothing about Johnny Mitchell. I've probably only heard Johnny Mitchell when I'm in your house, basically. <laughs> uh, would the book have come about if not for the Johnny Mitchell element? Mm. Do you think you would have had the same drive to write about these things without that as the framing 
yeah, I think this is a really good question. So I've definitely been writing about these things for a long time in poems. Um, so like much more in, indirectly. So I've always been motivated to write about them. Um, but I feel like my relationship to romantic love and the shame I felt at not having it and the kind of like hurt feelings that I had and, and kind of questioning about my own motivation, like, do I want to go out and get it? I don't think I could have contained that. It was too much of a mess without using a form. Mm. And I guess what I did, I've done in the book is use a form, like Joni reined me in and helped me think things through in a kind of more, um, not syst systematic, but just like a more controlled way, like gave me areas of focus. And I hope what that that does is like stop me just like you know for two hundred pages going like mm. whoa is me <laughs> like oh it's awful being a single because no, like that's not how I feel. So one of those. Yeah, yeah that's one of those. <laughs> um, so the book definitely um, owes a lot to the kind of structure that Joni helped to provide it and I to be honest I could have picked like a whole different set of yeah. Joni songs to explore the same thing from different albums um yeah Th does that answer it does sorry and do, and do you listen to the to the album with any difference now after writing about it ah my editor Jacob asked me this the other night like can you still listen I can just still listen to it completely normally Great. which I'm really glad about I really hope I don't ruin it for anyone else if like, mm. they read the book and they're like oh, no it's that Amy Keeper <laughs> she's <laughs> ruined Joni for me um yeah but I feel like that's the kind of that's the genius of that album like I cannot believe that I've been listening to it solidly for over 30 years now mm. and I'm I'm not like skipping tracks or is there anyone contemporary you feel anything similar towards um I'm really who do I love I really love Wise Blood mm. and um Jenny Lewis um yes yeah. so, so like they're not kind of like Joni Mitchell kind of tier but they they um I, I feel like they've accompanied me for several years now and I can imagine yeah. taking them into the future yeah when, yeah. when we're dying alone we can when we're both, dying yeah. alone with our <laughs> expensive care package <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah so so on that note right in terms of contemporary artists were, were there any uh, and actually when, when i was when i was thinking of this question for you i realized i had no idea if i know of of any models oh, of like, she meant me, me musicians sorry i just think i just oh no i, I, I meant like oh just now i meant any any contemporary musicians but oh, okay, in, in general yeah are there are there any women who are mm. artists or writers or thinkers or whatever kind of creators of things that, that were models for you or that you had in your mind while you were writing the book who have written or referred to singleness or to um, solitude that, that, mm. that you had in mind when you were writing or I mean, that were inspira inspirations or whatever. Yeah, def definitely. I had, um, when I was working on the book proposal, I had several epigraphs like for each chapter, like every page was like all this heavy ornamentation of epigraphs. And eventually um, uh, my agent was like, we need to, you need to say goodbye to them. Now. <laughs> like, we will now say goodbye to the epigraphs. But um, they were writers like, well, Elena Ferrante, like her book, Days of Abandonment, was something that I was really thinking about in the way it so viscerally like describes female desire and despair 
um, like she's got this amazing line about like how we personify the desire of the cock and we call it love, um, which like I, I just found so stressful to read. <laughs> but like <laughs> that, like wrote that down. Um, who else? Um, like a Denise Riley poem, well, like an extract from a Denise Riley poem where she says, some people fall in love, some people don't, oof, oof. Which <laughs> 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 I really like, for me. Um, <laughs> um, Mary Gateskill, mm. um, her book Lost Cat, where she talks about how many times she like opened the door, like pleading for someone to love her only to get the door shut in her face. Um, what else? Yes, just just like many. Yeah. Yeah. And memoir as a form, would you do it again? <laughs> mm. I'll have to see how this goes. I is, think. Is, is that true, right? Is it true you want to see like how? I need to see how it feel, yeah. feels. Like the experience, I'd, I'd love to write more memoir, like yeah. more, more like personal narrative essays. Um, but like, I, I, I don't have like a kind of, personal book in my back pocket that I'm like, no, now my memoir can come out <laughs> on, I don't know, like being a civil servant or something. <laughs> like, um, but I, yeah, I personally really love personal, like personal narrative in the, like the person I should have mentioned is Vivian Gornick, mm. who wrote um, The Odd Woman in the City, which is like this account of, of like living a solo life. Um, yeah. But it's not a life without romantic, love or desire and I think this is the thing that's really important um to kind of recognize you can you can be talking about both things mm -hmm. yeah. and what about you memoir yeah um I sort of, uh, yeah I don't know I sort of also feel like I don't have any narrative in my life at the moment or yeah there's no like story in my life at the moment and it'll only become clear a long time in the future mm -hmm. don't really know how to describe myself anymore <laughs> As in, you know, like when, before I had a public facing writing career, I was able to narrativize myself much more yeah. easily. And now I suppose I have like another bit of my brain is alert to the fact that other people will read it if I publish it and that changes things. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, hopefully they will. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, eventually, yes, I think. But I don't know when. It feels nicer to not for the moment, I think. Yeah. Would you, do you think you'll... Your next thing will be poetry again, or do you know? Don't know. Don't know. I haven't been writing any poetry. Um, I, I don't know whether it was Roddy dying that sort of just made me go like, need need a break from mm. poetry. Um, or whether I just, yeah, I really needed the direct address, I guess, of like, I, um, I think this, I think that. <laughs> yeah. And did you, this, this is a question a lot of people asked me after my book came out, like, the, did you, think about other women while you were writing this book so so like what I mean by that is is uh was it intentional in any way to 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 want to offer solace to other people who've experienced similar things to you or did it did it exist as a solely subjective project that hope you know that you know from a very abstracted sense maybe it will impact other other women's experience of this same issue or was that in your mind when you were writing basically yeah um I feel like when I was writing, it was more, I, I've just got to like shut out the idea of a, an audience or a, a reader or particularly like an address to somebody like like me. Mm. 
Um, but now that it's published, I do hope that people who have encountered like difficulty in finding romantic relationships will find comfort in, in like an account of it that doesn't say to them, oh, um, you can just be a strong, independent person and you mm. don't need a relationship. You can just be your best self on your own. Um, or say like, here is, um, I was alone and then I found love. Um, and I feel like those two kind of narratives feel like very easy to access. Yeah. And there is definitely less that, that's in this in-between state of um, you can powerfully want some something, find that it's not accessible to you and still find ways to create a meaningful life for yourself that mm. has joy and pleasure and plenty of love in it. Um, and I think that that doesn't need to be just for people who have romantic absence in their life. Like there are all there are things we all want and desire that we don't get, mm -hmm. um, and we have to find a way of living alongside that, and um, not not kind of undoing everything that's good by considering ourselves like temporary in this temporary state of wanting that will get fulfilled. Mm -hmm. Um, so there's definitely, a, you know, people in my mind now who the book is kind of for, yeah. if that makes sense, but they weren't who I was writing to as yeah. I was writing it. I really enjoyed the part where you're speaking to a younger woman who's who's relating to you. I mean, I found that to be a very spicy and great bit of the book. Because yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel like that, that, that is something that probably, I you know, would be... I can imagine it would be difficult to admit that you feel any sort of uh, animosity towards another woman admit like saying these things to you. Yeah. Uh, but actually, while I was reading your book, I posted a picture of it on Instagram, and <laughs> and and somebody I know who's like a twenty-five-year-old very hot girl who has a boyfriend every couple of months is like, "This is me." I was like, "No, <laughs> <laughs> I, I you've been single for two weeks. It's okay, you know." Like, but so I can imagine it must be a strange. It, it might be strange in in the coming weeks and months and years for you to have to hear from people who you oh, yeah. do not relate to you and, and don't accept that they relate to you. <laughs> yeah, there, there have been quite a few messages that are, that are like, oh, I really seem, you know, like, this is this is what I need. I've been single for a couple of months. So yeah. I'm like, well, yeah. <laughs> just you wait. <laughs> um, no, that's mean. I'm not mean. No, no, no. No, I actually thought it was a brilliant bit of the book. It, it, it really felt so tr true to, like, yeah. I mean, it, it is frustrating for people who don't experience the same things. Need to say that they do, basically, even if they mean them very well. So I thought that was a, a very, a very nice thing to read, actually. Yeah. Yeah. It was so, actually, someone was asking me the other day, like, what's the book about? And I, I tried to explain, but they were, they were colleagues, so I sort of didn't want to like get into like a big conversation about it. And actually, the first thing that they did was start saying about how terrible it is to be married and have children. Mm. And I was like, like we don't, we don't have to set this up as a kind of, you know, um, head to head, yeah. like rap battle or something. <laughs> it's like, it's fine. <laughs> you can be married and have children. I, it's, it's great. <laughs> um, and then I guess I also just wanted to ask about, um, I mean, 
So I, I came to know you as a poet first, obviously, as, as I guess a lot of people maybe maybe have done. Um, and I was wondering if if you if if like your interest in this book, how much do you consider them to have been explored already in your poetry, or or how how new is the material for you oh, here? Good question. Um... So I guess uh, the, the honest answer would be it's probably been explored a lot in my poetry reading because I've sought out poems that I've, I've felt have helped me understand or like articulate something. And I quote some of them in the book. Um, so for example, the way Rosemary Tonks writes about love um, and desire and her kind of absolute fury with herself for having any kind of emotional relationship to to romance um so as a as a reader mm. like i feel like that that has informed like the the content of the book um and my my book my poetry book before this isn't forever definitely was me going into this territory of feeling incredibly lo like lonely I guess mm. and exploring um, loneliness and it, 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 weirdly I don't actually feel like a very lonely person now but I did at, at that point um, and I think that's when I was really considering um, motherhood as well so mm. some of that stuff um, I you know I reread the book before writing this just to remind almost like remind myself like what state of mind I was in at particular points that I record um recording yeah in the book but like my first poetry book was just like almost like a kind of horny like like create you know starry-eyed love love book where mm -hmm. i was just fancying lots of people <laughs> <laughs> cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue also you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states united healthcare short-term insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage for you learn more at uh1.com quality sleep is essential that's why the sleep number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature sleep number smart beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I think it's time to take questions. If anybody has any questions for Amy about her work or the book or anything at all. Hi. Hi. Um, I'm a massive Joni Mitchell fan. And I was wondering, this is probably a really, really hard question, but if you're going to go to a desert island and it's the end of the world and you have to bring three Joni Mitchell songs. Oh my God. Could you do it? Could you pick three? <laughs> could I pick three? Uh, should I just go really fast? I'd probably pick Willie from Ladies of the Canyon because I love that song. Uh, Coyote, probably from Harisha, and the last time I saw Richard, maybe. Why was I not? Oh, that was so stressful. <laughs> <laughs> Great question. Never ask me that again. <laughs> Hello. Um, I I can't remember if you talk about this in the book. Um, but I keep reading a a statistic 
that is um, middle-aged single women being the most happy people. <laughs> and it's kind of, I just thought, <laughs> just thought I'd ask. if you did mention that, I don't remember. Um, but also it's kind of like the pressure on like he- women to kind of present at every family occasion and, you know, yeah. that kind of idea. And also I was just thinking about all the, the idea of alternative families and the importance of that within a lot of cultures and kind of whether I <laughs> just the idea of you you know talking about dying alone I'm like I'll come and thank if you I'm so still alive, <laughs> I'll come and do you know mop your brow or <laughs> I think there is I don't know that I'd, I don't know if that was a question sorry um thank you I've got a declare I know I know Sophie so I'm really good Sophie just just Sophie just offered to come and mop my brow when I'm dying which I'm really grateful for and will hold you to um yeah so your question was kind of about the the single woman in the in the kind of wider family unit and like I've got to be sorry because two of my siblings are here so like don't take this personally but there is something about like if you're the if everyone else is in a partnership or they are, uh, they have children. You're kind of, you're kind of there as like, um, what's the word? Like a, a bit of a mule, right? You're, you're kind of ferrying drinks around, mm. preparing dinner, washing up, making sure that everything is coordinated in the right way. You, um, and you, you know, you probably be given a rubbish bed, except, except, <laughs> except. Because I think my family, I've really thrown tantrums about this. Um, you know, think times have changed. So I'm, you know, very, very grateful for that. Thank you. Uh, mm-hmm. um, I, I would love the, I, I would love this, you know, idea of an alternative kind of family um, and to consider like as a, as a kind of cishet woman, what, what can I learn from the queer family? Probably a great deal. But even in my social circle, which features lots of queer people, the majority of them are in relationships and they're still, you know, that becomes, that's the top tier, right? So there's, there's no one, there's no one for whom like I get to be mm. top tier all the time. Like my, my friends are amazing, but you know, I'm just aware of the reality of the situation. So that's one of the things that makes you want to form a romantic attachment. So just so you can go like, oh, thank God, you know, like you have to just deal with me and and um, I can just um, give myself over to it. Sorry, yeah. Hi. Sorry. <laughs> Hello. Um, this is not really a fully formed question yet because I'm running out of comparisons in my mind. But I wanted to ask, with kind of the resurgence of this kind of conversation and kind of being single and living life and creating a life mm. and I guess the resurgence of bell hooks and stuff like that and people writing about radical intimacy do you want your book slash writing to exist within that kind of I guess space and canon or how do you think people are going to engage with your book kind of yeah. existing in this space so um I read bell hooks is all about love as i was writing the book like if i i feel like if i'd read that book at school it really would have changed my life and would have probably altered my entire relationship to love so like i really wish it was on the curriculum um i would love to be read alongside books like that but um 
I I don't know whether I will be. It like I guess readers will will tell me at, at some point where it fits because like it's not a researched book. It's not drawing on um, data about single people or or like an investigation into how other people encounter singleness. It really is just an account of my life. And that will be really interesting for some people, but for other people, they'll want more of that researched kind of um, lived, ex you know, lived experience alongside research. Um, I hope that the two things can be rich to have together. Yeah, thanks for the question. Hi, um, yeah, the first thing I wanted to say, um, what you said about dying alone really, made me think about like a conversation I had with my friend once where I was talking about like a failed romantic interest and wanting to prove to them that like I could be like wife material and that feeling like a failure and then she was like but you're not <laughs> I was like wow mm. um but yeah the other thing I wanted to say was like do you feel like when you were talking about that concept of like being the only kind of single woman and being around a straight family where like everyone's getting married and having children mm. I was wondering like for example, like being a writer or like having something else, I feel like in those environments is sometimes seen as like you've chosen like something else. Yeah. And the same with like if you were like a banker or something. And do you think that that gives it in like for maybe like people that are married or people that are having children? Do you think that like they have a bit of a value system attached to like whether they think that you've made a choice to do something else rather than have children rather than like if you just didn't have children? for no reason or yeah what are your thoughts on that then? yeah um what do I think about that I think for some people they will they will kind of it's not that they'll think you've got that so um uh you've made this conscious choice not to have what I've got because you've chosen this other thing but what they might think is um I realise this is very big for you in the same way that it is very big for me to have um, a, a committed partner or a child or I don't know, like a particular a particular job. But I think they're just they're sort of weird things to compare, aren't they? Like I did have a friend say to me once when I was like talking about. Um, finding it difficult to encounter news of another friend being pregnant. Oh, but you've got your book. And I was like, mm. well, you know, like a, a, like a book is a thing in its own right. Like we don't have to have like surrogate mm. child books and stuff. Because <laughs> like that's just, it's just weird to me. Um, I, yeah, I, I feel like we probably need to have a lot more honest conversations between women who aren't having children, either out of choice or because it hasn't happened for them, and like a much less defensive conversation between them and women who are having children. Because what I see is like people taking stands that like that everyone's just getting very very offended by the pure act of somebody not having a family or finding stuff about motherhood boring or uh, I don't know, not, not, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what I'm saying now. Sorry. <laughs> I'm going to stop. That's to stop. <laughs> um, just one small question. <laughs> <In a hole. laughs> Did you ever call the cab driver? No. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I didn't call a cab driver because I'm a chicken, but also he was kind of weird. Yeah. <laughs> he was really, he was into doing extreme assault courses. He did Uber, he, he did like Uber for fun. Like, <laughs> that, is that an LA thing? Maybe. Hi, um, thank you for this book. I mean, I haven't read it yet, but I feel, I mean, I'm in my 30s, but it's so relatable. Um, my question is kind of two part. Um, <laughs> um, did you ever consider writing this memoir on any other artists other than Joni Mitchell? Um, or was it always going to be her? And how did you find it fitting with the kind of overarching themes, if any? Um, so I, I didn't, but like, I'm a big nerd for the music. Yeah, should I go now? Sorry. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, like, I probably could have like picked the Hounds of Love or something and done the same thing, but it wouldn't have, it didn't occur to me. Um, and I'm glad, it, I'm glad it was, it was Joni because Joni feels absolutely right. Um, the thing, the thing that I did was I sat down and I listened to all of the songs and all of the lyrics and I picked one thing from every song that helped me explore something that I thought was denied um, me because I don't have a romantic partner. Um, and it it kind of aligned so beautifully. Like I don't think my book aligned beautifully. I just mean like the the, the <laughs> you can say that yeah the content of the songs aligned so beautifully to the things I wanted to explore. Um, it felt very easy as soon as I decided on the form. I was like, yeah, it, it you know it, it was intact. Does that answer your question? Yes. And lastly, yeah. have you read Conversations on Love or? Um... The other one by Olivia Pett, I've forgotten book. So I have not read mm -hmm. Conversations on Love or the other one. It's really, really good. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I have listened, a, there is a podcast, isn't there? Conversations on Love podcast, am I not imagine? Yeah, yeah, so I have listened to some of, some of those conversations. Yeah, they're really great. And I really love This Is Love, the um, American oh, podcast yeah. as well, which explores different kind of, types and aspects of, of love yeah. also as a massive Joni Mitchell fan I'm very <laughs> excited about I just wondered if you'd had, had to get any permissions or you'd had any dealings with the Joni Mitchell oh, estate <laughs> uh, yes many many dealings and had to get permissions and I'm not willing to tell anyone how much permissions <laughs> there are <laughs> um all, my only advice is never, never, ever <laughs> quote lyrics in a book. <laughs> That's, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Thank you, everyone. It, it is a brave book. It's vulnerable and it's really, really thoughtful. It's amazing. Oh, it's you. really thoughtful. So thank you all for bringing such thoughtful questions and thank you both for bringing such like an open and fluid conversation. Um, Amy's going to sign. Megan is it? Meg, yeah, Hi, Megan's book. Yeah. <laughs> um, if you haven't got the book already, buy it. If you have, buy another one, give it to someone else. Um, most importantly, uh, stick around, get some book signed, have a glass of wine and thank our guests. Thank you both so thank much. You. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.